1 Corinthians 15, 1-5. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you, which you receive and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are now saved. If you heard firmly, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I receive, I pass on to you as first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to see first, and then to the twelve. Thanks, Elias. Thanks, Jeff, the assistant. <laughs> so our lives consist of a lot of different things, a lot of people, a lot of events, a lot of activities, a lot of places, a lot of tasks, and some of those are more important than others. Some of them are of some importance, but not ultimate. Some of them are of very little importance at all. I decided yesterday that even if you have removed the drain from your bathroom sink, it's not really important that you get the new one installed the same day. I may make that same decision again today. But that's just me. And I digress. Christianity is of utmost importance, but even in Christianity, there are different activities and thoughts and feelings and truths that are of various degrees of importance. One of the keys to living well in life and one of the keys to living well in Christ is to make the most important things most important in fact. Uh, as they say, the main thing is to make the main thing the main thing. And this passage that Elias read reminds us of the thing that is of first importance in Christianity. And I want to remind you of the thing that is of first importance in Christianity this morning. But I'd like to pray again before we do. Father... Thank you for what you did for us through Jesus. Thank you that we've had the privilege to hear about it. Thank you for opening our hearts and our minds so that we can grasp it at least in some degree. We pray that you would work on us through it again this morning. In Christ, amen. So I want to begin this story where several of the New Testament writers began, and that is with John the Baptist. John uh, called the Baptist because he baptized lots of folks, uh, appeared in the wilderness in Judea, and began announcing the kingdom of God, that God was coming to reign in the world in a whole new degree, in a whole new way. And he called attention to Jesus who was coming after him. And he said, he's someone greater than me. In fact, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals, he said. And he called people to repent. And then one day Jesus came and asked John to baptize him. And John said, I need to be baptized by you, 
but you're wanting me to baptize you? And Jesus said, permit it now to fulfill all righteousness. And so John baptized Jesus. And when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit and power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil because God was with him. He healed diseases. He opened the eyes of the blind. He cleansed lepers. He even raised a couple of people from the dead. And he taught about the kingdom of God and the ways of God and the nature of God. And he exposed the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of his day. And in response, pretty early on, they plotted about how they could get rid of Jesus. And their plots came to fruition about three years into his ministry. It was just before the Jewish feast of Passover. Jesus had traveled from Galilee down to Jerusalem and had several more encounters with those religious leaders. And they had had enough. They decided they would turn him over and seek to have him executed. But not during the feast, they said, because they didn't want there to be a riot. Jesus, um, knowing that it was time for the Passover, arranged for a couple of his disciples to go into the city and to prepare for them to eat the Passover meal. Uh, They found an upper room that was furnished and ready, and they gathered around that table, and Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. Now, the others didn't know it, but Judas Iscariot was going to go and plot with the Jewish religious leaders, and for a few hundred dollars, Judas agreed that he would turn Jesus over to them. And that's what he was referring to. And during that meal, he took some bread and broke it, shared it with his disciples and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. And he took a cup of wine and said, This cup is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And they shared that cup together. And when the meal was over, They sang a hymn and went out into the night. Uh, By then it was Thursday evening. And they crossed over the Kidron Valley and up to the Mount of Olives, about a 45-minute walk. And either along the way or once they arrived, Jesus taught them many more things. And then at some point, he separated himself from the big group of disciples, and then from a smaller group. He he was in the garden called Gethsemane, and he began to pray earnestly that the cup might pass away from him. Uh, Maybe a cup of suffering, maybe even a cup of the wrath of God, but definitely he's referring to what was about to happen And he prayed that if it was God's will, it would pass away. But he submitted himself himself to God's will in either case. 
after praying, he came back and his disciples had fallen asleep and he woke them up and he went and prayed again and it happened again and he prayed a third time. And after that third time, he came back and said, Arise, here comes my betrayer. And sure enough, a mob of people with clubs and lanterns and spears and such um, had come sent by the Jewish religious leaders to arrest Jesus. They were led by Judas, who knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And when they arrived, Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Peter had a sword and he swung it, cut off the ear of the servant of the Jewish high priest. His name was Malchus. But Jesus said, enough, all who live by the sword will die by the sword. And he actually healed that servant's ear. The disciples were scattered. Most of them fled. Uh, Peter and John hung around from a distance to see what would happen. But Jesus was arrested and led away like a lamb being led to the slaughter. Over the next few hours of Thursday night and Friday morning, Jesus would be questioned by the high priest, um, by the Jewish ruling body called the Sanhedrin, by the Romans and a couple of others as well. All kinds of charges and accusations would be made against him, but they could never quite make their accusations line up. Uh, They were misusing some of his language and accusing him of being a king and being a threat to Caesar. At one strategic point, the high priest said, I charge you under oath to tell me if you are the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One. And Jesus said, yes, it is as you say. And you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory. The high priest was all upset, tore his clothes and said, you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? We don't need any more witnesses. And they said that he was worthy of death. And so when the whole Sanhedrin gathered, sure enough, they sentenced him to death. But they couldn't carry out a sentence like that. And so they sent him over to the Roman governor, whose name was Pilate. Pilate also questioned him and said, are you the king of the Jews? And again, Jesus said, yes, it is as you say. And they conversed back and forth about the nature of his kingdom. Pilate didn't really think Jesus had done anything worthy of death. And he sought to have Jesus released. What's more, Pilate's wife sent him a message saying, I suffered terribly last night in a dream because of that righteous man. Don't have anything to do with him. And so Pilate sought to have Jesus released. But the crowd said, if you have him released, you're no friend of Caesar because this man claimed to be a king. And Pilate, wanting to please the crowd, 
washed his hands, literally, of the whole event. But he had Jesus flogged, uh, beaten mercilessly. And then the soldiers mocked him and made fun of him and uh, acted like he was a king, put a crown of thorns on his head, and then finally led him out to be executed along with two criminals. Initially, Jesus was carrying his own crossbeam, as was the custom. But apparently, due to the flogging and being up all night and all that he had been through, he was not able to carry his own cross all the way out. So they pressed into service a man named Simon uh, from Cyrene, and he carried the cross out to the place of the skull. It was a crossroads just outside the city. Uh, They deliberately conducted their executions there because a part of it was the shame and the humiliation and the passers-by mocking the victims of crucifixion. And so Jesus was crucified probably mid-morning on Friday. And sure enough, the passers-by made fun of him and mocked him. And even the leaders of the Jews mocked him and said, So, come down from the cross that we may see and believe you. He saved others. He can't save himself. And all sorts of things. And even at least one of the other criminals was mocking him and making fun of him. About noon, a thick darkness came over the whole land. And around 3 p.m., Jesus cried out, with a loud voice, breathed his last, saying, It is finished. And he gave up his spirit. The Roman centurion that was overseeing the crucifixion, when he saw the way he died, said, Surely this man was the Son of God. And remarkably, back in Jerusalem, in the temple inside the city, Um, there's a curtain that hung between the holy place and the most holy place, which represented the presence of God. And that curtain spontaneously ripped in two from top to bottom, indicating that access to the presence of God had finally been gained. Um, It's normal for crucified victims to be on the crosses for days. Jesus seems to have been there only about six hours. Uh, But the leaders of the Jews didn't want the the bodies uh, to stay on the crosses, and so they gained permission to break the legs, uh, which would bring death on more swiftly. And they did that to to the two criminals. But Jesus was already dead. And so a soldier jabbed his spear into the side of Jesus, and out came blood and water. People couldn't tell at the time, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. 
Joseph of Arimathea, a follower of Jesus, uh, went, went to Pilate and got permission to take the body. And along with Nicodemus, who was a disciple of Jesus, they took Jesus' body down from the cross and they buried him in a new tomb, Joseph's tomb, that was cut out of rock. And they rolled a large stone over the opening, a stone that was made for the purpose of keeping the tomb safe from grave robbers and from animals. And about evening time on Friday, the Sabbath began, and the Jews rested according to their commandment. I think that Saturday must have been a dreadfully long and dark day for anyone who had followed Jesus during his lifetime. But then, Sunday morning came, and it changed everything. A couple of women were making their way to the tomb in hopes of preparing Jesus' body more properly for burial than had been possible in the haste of the oncoming Sabbath. And they were talking about who would roll the stone away for them. But when they got there, they saw a remarkable sight. The large stone had been rolled back and a messenger of God was there, dressed in dazzling white. And the messenger said, I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here He is risen and gave instructions to the women who were joyful and confused and afraid and bewildered all at the same time. They fled from the tomb, except Mary Magdalene seems to have stuck around and run into Jesus, didn't recognize him. Uh, He had a body, but his body was different somehow. Uh, She didn't recognize him until he spoke her name. And then she bowed down before him and he gave her instructions similar to what the angel had said. And over a period of about 40 days, Jesus appeared to Cephas, as the text said, and to the twelve and to lots of other people, uh, giving proofs that he really was alive. He let them touch his his hands and, and his side where the spear jabbed into him. And he ate some bread and fish in their presence to prove that he really was alive. And at the end of those 40 days, he met his 11 disciples um, and, and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go make disciples. Of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I'll be with you always. And he told them that he would send his Spirit. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name. And we're still doing that. And we're still baptizing people in his name. And then... He was ascended, he ascended up into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God at the place of highest honor and authority in heaven or earth. Now, I want us to talk about that. 
and I want us to talk about it from the passage that Elias read in 1 Corinthians 15. And just note the things that are said about that message. And the first one is that this is the gospel. This is the gospel, according to verse 1. It's the good news. I hadn't been at Northwest uh, for too many years, maybe two or three, uh, till I got in trouble for not preaching the gospel. I think what the other person was saying, even though I still don't know who it was, and if it was you, you should come confess right after this. I think they were saying that uh, I didn't end my sermons right. I think they were saying I didn't give a, a call to become a Christian at the end of my sermons. Ironically, most of the times when I've heard people do that, they don't preach the gospel either because this is the gospel. And last week when I said if we are going to be agents of God to bring peace on earth, we have to be ready to give the reason for the hope we have. This is the reason for the hope we have. This is the gospel. Verse 3, for I re- what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. That is the gospel. Verse 1 also says that the gospel is to be received. The gospel is for everybody, but the gospel does have to be received. In John 1, John writes that Jesus went to his own, but those who were his own didn't receive him. But as many as did receive him, to those who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God. The essence of how you receive the gospel of Christ is by faith. Verse 2 says the same thing. Um, We are to believe. And it can't be belief that is in vain. It's got to be authentic faith. Baptism is another part of how we receive it. And it's no different than faith, really. Baptism is not a work you do to save yourself. It is a faith response to the gospel in which you die to your old life just like Jesus died, in which you're buried underwater just like Jesus was buried in the tomb, in which you are raised to live a new life, just like Jesus was raised to live a new life. Baptism is a faith response to the gospel in which you participate in the gospel. We are also to take our stand in the gospel, according to verse 1. There's a lot of Things that people take their stand on. Uh, They take their stand on their politics. Uh, They take their stand on their good looks. Folks, I can see you from up here. 
you don't want to do that. Um, earlier in the week, I was staying at a, a different place and uh, looked into a mirror that had a better light than I have at home. I don't want to put my hope in that either. And you don't want to put your hope in your athleticism. And you don't want to put your hope in your strength. And you don't want to put your hope in your accomplishments. And you don't want to put your hope in your wit or your humor or your winsome personality. You get no points with God for those things. You want to put your hope in the grace in which we now stand and that has been revealed in the gospel. Fourth, this is the message by which we are being saved, according to verse 2, because Christ died for our sins, verse 3. Christ didn't just get executed. Uh, A lot of people thought, well, there's another execution. No, God was working In this execution, God chose to work in this execution and count it as the punishment that we deserve for our sins. Christ died for my selfishness. Christ died for my arrogance. Christ died for intrusive thoughts that come into my head. Christ died for unhealthy feelings generated by those intrusive thoughts. Christ died for deeds I have done and ways I've treated people that are not right. Christ died for our sins. Sin puts us in a perilous situation. Nobody wants to hear this. Um, We... We talked about it too much in former years. Now we've overreacted and hardly talk about it at all. But the truth is that we've all sinned. And that makes us accountable to God. And if we don't get that taken care of, we are going to be judged by God and suffer the righteous wrath of God. And if we don't get it taken care of, it's going to rip our lives apart here and now. It's going to give us all kinds of addictions and slavery to sin that will ruin our lives and our relationships and all that we try to do. And so thank God there is a way that we can be saved from our sins. This is the message by which we are saved. And if you haven't figured that out yet, I would encourage you to explore it uh, and figure out how that saves us from judgment, but also how it saves us from the power of sin in our daily lives. And finally, this is the message of first importance in Christianity. Verse 3 again, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then appeared to the twelve. Our lives consist of many activities. 
and people and places and tasks and things. And our Christian lives consist of many different things as well. But the thing that is of first importance is this. This is the gospel. And this is of first importance. Come September, I will have been preaching 40 years. Um, That's a long time. I think it's about 1,800 sermons. I can do those over if you want me to. Um, I, I like preaching. I'd like to do it another 10 years. But you don't always get to do what you like to do. And you don't always get your way. And I know for sure I won't be doing this in 30 years. Um, my point is, I'm pretty sure I'm closer to the end than the beginning. And I've started to ask myself, have I preached the right things? Have I passed on what I should have been passing on? I think I've preached through 20 of the 27 books of the New Testament. And there's a part of me that wants to do a seven-week series and get those others in. But I think instead that what I'm going to do is make sure that when I look back, I can say, I have preached the most important thing. And I've done this before, in fact, very similar to this, and I may yet do it again. And there's some other stuff that's pretty important, too, but by all means, I hope And I intend to preach the most important thing. And I want to leave you with two questions. One is, what can you do to make sure that the gospel is the most important thing in your life? What can you do to make sure the gospel is the most important thing in your life? And the other question is, what can you do to make sure the gospel is the most important thing at Northwest? What can you do to make sure the gospel is the most important thing at Northwest? If you've not yet received the gospel uh, and you need some help, we'd love to help you. We have some shepherds and their wives at the back. You can speak to one of them. Um, You can speak to them about anything going on in your life or pray with them. And you can do that right now while we stand and sing.